Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, exposing Justin Trudeau's pandemic power grab. Also, Jim Carahalios suing the Conservative Party for disqualifying him from the leadership race. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. What was it that Rahm Emanuel said, never let a crisis go to waste? That certainly looks like something Justin Trudeau has taken to heart. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, continuing our running stream of pandemic editions of the program here, and talking in this case about the intersection of COVID-19 with Canadian politics and, and how something that should never have been about politics has been politicized to the nth degree by Justin Trudeau. Now, I want to give a a few different examples of how we got here and why it's so damaging that we have. Because for the last couple of weeks, I actually said in, in the previous edition of this program, for example, that Justin Trudeau has been a very capable and consistent communicator. And I, I was prefacing that by saying that I, I don't necessarily endorse all of the policy decisions. Clearly, I've criticized several of them, but he's been available. He's been speaking. And you know what? I, I think there is a role for the prime minister of Canada, whomever it is, to be a unifying figure in times of crisis. And I think that the opposition parties understood that, which is why the Conservatives have not been relentlessly criticizing Justin Trudeau, why Jagmeet Singh has not been doing it, why the opposition parties all basically said, all right, we're going to take a backseat here and let the Prime Minister of Canada, the Office of Prime Minister, be the head of government, the person leading Canadians through this. Now, that goodwill that I think Justin Trudeau was getting from the opposition evaporated on Monday night when the Liberals tried to sneak in legislation that would give them unfettered taxing and spending power without parliamentary approval until December of 2021. So almost two years from now, at which point, and I said this in another show with Candace Malcolm yesterday, if we are still dealing with COVID-19 by December 2021, there are bigger problems than Canada's fiscal situation. So all of this is to say that we are looking at a pandemic power grab, a COVID-19, can we call it, coronavirus, an attempt at subverting the parliamentary process, subverting democracy, all in the name of crisis management. Now, I agree that governments need to be able to act quickly when there is a crisis. I agree that governments need to be able to move swiftly, to make tough calls, and to not go through the extended and prolonged bureaucracy. But you can still do things in a democratic way. So this initial bill that the Liberals put forward now had a section in it that would have given the finance minister, Bill Morneau, the complete power to levy taxes, to spend whatever he wants, all without parliamentary approval, and again, until December 2021. Now, this will happen in a way that would have just completely destroyed or left the potential for the Canadian economy to be obliterated because all of a sudden there's no check and balance in Parliament. So this was going to be tabled, and the whole point of it was the Liberals were saying they wanted unanimous consent. 
All the parties agreed to send a little delegation for a total of 32 out of 338 MPs, and they were all going to be MPs that could drive to Parliament Hill, and they were going to just agree because it was important to get the money out the door. The $82 billion that Justin Trudeau promised to Canadians in aid, in tax deferral, in relief programs last week, that was what was supposed to be in this bill. But instead... It is a power grab. The bill was going to be manifesting itself not as an $82 billion relief package, but as an attempt for the government of Canada to hold a COVID-19, a, a coronavirus. I don't know which one we're going with yet, but a, a pandemic power grab very much. And look, I'm glad that the government backed away on this. And we heard the next morning after news of this broke, Justin Trudeau tweeted that it was going to be put forward without, I think it was Clause 2. And Pablo Rodriguez, who's the Liberal government's House leader, said very similarly, we've listened, we've consulted, this is what democracy is all about, and, and we are going to engage with the Conservatives and find a way through. So... Yes, you can say power to you. You can give them a gold star for that. But it doesn't address the two fundamental questions of A, why was that provision there in the first place? And B, what did you think was going to happen? So I don't know if they hoped that no one would notice or if they thought that the climate would be such that the conservatives would have to go along with it because we're in the middle of a crisis. The conservatives didn't take the bait. And they risked, uh, as you saw from the media narrative, being accused of holding up essential aid when in actuality the conservatives were just holding up what was going to be a liberal exploitation of a crisis. Now take a look at this tweet from CTV's Don Martin, which I think really encapsulates why the media's problems here are so ubiquitous. He said, if Parliament can't work constructively and collaboratively to fight this pandemic, they never will. Conservatives hold up speedy passage of emergency COVID-19 aid package. Now, this is a national news watch piece that says conservatives balk at power grab. Emergency COVID-19 aid package bogs down. It's a Canadian press piece, but a, a national news watch headline. So the media was trying to frame the conservatives as being the bad guys here. They were trying to make it out that Justin Trudeau was the savior coming in with his $82 billion. And oh, those penny pinching conservatives don't want the people to get the essential help they need. But this was not what was agreed to. And Andrew Scheer, who I know is on his way out as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, I thought was very solid in this. He said, look, there's a very easy way to do this. Just pass the bill that you were talking about last week. Pass the bill that you promised. Pass the bill that you told Canadians you were going to pass. Put that forward and we will all vote for it. You'll get your unanimous consent. But that's not what the Liberals tried to do at this emergency session of the House of Commons. Instead, the Liberals decided they were going to go and try to basically run the table, not just during this crisis, but for the next year and three quarters or so. So the Conservatives have now claimed victory. What happened was the parliamentary session met Tuesday at about noon, and less than five minutes later, it was suspended because Pablo Rodriguez said all of the parties were going to go and negotiate behind closed doors to basically get a version of the bill that they were all going to be on board with, that they would all be able to pass and offer that unanimous consent to. 
And, and I have a lot of questions about this. I, I mean, for starters, and I asked why the Liberals thought this would fly in the first place, a part of me thinks they were trying to get the Conservatives to vote against it. Because I already see how the narrative is shaping up in the media, like I just mentioned. So I think that the Liberals wanted to put a bill forward that has all of the $82 billion stuff, but also had additional government powers that they knew the Conservatives would resist just so that they could get the conservatives to vote against it and then say, oh, look at those conservatives. Look at those conservatives holding up the essential work that the government is trying to do. This is why we need all of these powers, because, you know, if you go through Parliament, all these people with their democracy and, you know, their checks and balances and their accountability, they'll just hold it up and not let us do what we want to do, which is, you know, kind of the benefit of not living in a dictatorship. So, yeah, you can have quick, prompt action that doesn't subvert parliament. And I think what Andrew Scheer was saying yesterday is that this is precisely the point of this emergency session yesterday. You proved that you can have parliament. It can function in a pandemic situation by having a limited number of MPs, by working together, by doing all of these things. But you need to have honest brokers and you need to have people operating in good faith. And I have no doubt in my mind that the Liberals were not operating in good faith when it came to putting this draft bill forward Monday night. Now, the bill has now passed. The Conservatives have claimed victory on it, but I'll talk about that in a moment. I, I want to share a, a little snippet of a press conference that Andrew Scheer did Tuesday morning. And like I said, I mean, Scheer was fantastic through this and acknowledged that the Conservatives were pretty blindsided. They wanted to have a clean bill. They wanted to have a bill that just shipped out the aid that Justin Trudeau had promised, and instead they got one that was essentially calling for parliamentary authority to turn Justin Trudeau and his cabinet into a, a little uh, oligarchy of sorts. And this is what Andrew Scheer said, because I actually was at uh, the teleconference version of that press conference, and I asked Andrew Scheer a couple of questions about it, because he was resistant to the idea for obvious reasons of giving Trudeau what Andrew Scheer called a blank check. But the flip side of that is if you're saying to the government, yeah, we'll give you all the things you ask for, how is that different than a blank check? At what point is it no longer a point where you are supporting what the government is asking for? And, and this is the, the brief exchange that Andrew Scheer and I had Tuesday morning at his press conference. Uh, good morning, Mr. Scheer. My first question is regarding the dollar amount. So right now it's $82 billion. You, you've noted these are unprecedented times. Is this, a, at, uh, in your view, something where you just have to give the government whatever it asks for? Or is there a limit where you and the Conservatives are going to say, listen, I mean, I think you're going too far here? We're going to be focused on the nature of the programs that are designed. Uh, we recognize that it's going to require a lot of government resources to help people through this difficult time. Uh, and so we're going to be focusing in these early days to make sure that the programs are designed in a way that will actually reach people, that nobody falls through the cracks, uh, that when we can identify a gap in, 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 in how they've designed something, uh, that, they're, that they're able to address that. So that's, that's our mindset right now. 
you know, we know that we're entering into this period uh, with already carrying uh, massive deficits from years uh, before. This is one of the, re you know, we, we, we have always called for fiscal responsibility while times are good so that we're in a better position uh, when a crisis hits or when a downturn uh, presents itself. Uh, that being said, uh, we believe in this period of time, while Canadians are focused on, uh, you know, worried about how they're going to pay their rent, worried about how they're going to pay their groceries, that that needs to be the primary focus. And, uh, and that's exactly what, why we're here today, uh, to make sure that, that this package of assistance gets passed. And as a follow-up, you were very critical, uh, of course, of the previous draft of the legislation the Liberals plan to table today, which would have given uh, reportedly unfettered taxing and spending power. Uh, can you rule out the possibility that you would vote against uh, a confidence motion or a bill that uh, was implicitly a confidence motion during this crisis? Well, look, uh, I think this is a period of time where all parties are willing to put aside their partisan differences and focus on uh, helping Canadians, putting them first. I don't think Canadians want to see uh, partisan... Uh, 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 Partisan divisions, partisan uh, disagreements. Uh, this should be an opportunity for parliamentarians from all parties to come together to pass the measures that the government announced. That's, I, I believe, it's very simple. Actually, the, Justin Trudeau announced a number of measures uh, last week. We're here to support them. Uh, if he believes that there are new measures that are required, uh, we are willing to come back and play our role in providing the parliamentary oversight to do exactly that so we'll we'll see we'll wait and see exactly what the government proposes this afternoon our hope is that they will stay focused on providing assistance to canadians not focused on a power grab uh, not focused on uh, giving themselves uh, unprecedented new powers uh, we can be here uh, in 48 hours notice uh, to do exactly what we're doing today to pass measures to provide that assistance to Canadians. I believe that is, uh, we've shown that good faith. We agreed to the adjournment a few weeks ago. We agreed to grant uh, uh, flexibility to the government in terms of spending. We agreed to come back today. We agreed to uh, a shorter, uh, a smaller roster to respect the public health concerns. Uh, so I believe that Parliament is functioning very well during this time and can continue to do that in the days and weeks ahead. Yeah, and I didn't mention it at the beginning when I was leading into that, but as you heard in my second question, I asked him about that confidence aspect in, in that any government bill is a spending bill. So if it is going to be a spending bill, that makes it a confidence motion of sorts. So is that an area where the Conservatives would vote against? And Scheer was very clear, this is not about partisanship. He just wants good policy coming out of the federal government at a time of crisis for Canada. So this is, I think, a very important dynamic that we have here. So what happened is after the House of Commons had suspended, hours later, I mean, I was following, I had CPAC on in my living room at home being in quarantine, and I was trying to watch uh, to see when they were sitting down again. And at a certain point, I just assumed the screen had frozen because it got to like the point where I'm eating dinner at 7 p.m. and it's still... Uh, suspended uh, by, ver I don't know if we can put the graphic up, but suspended by direction of the chair or something like that. And then, you know, after dinner, suspended by direction of the chair. And then, you know, bedtime at 11 p.m. And it's suspended by <laughs> direction of the chair. So I'm like, all right, well, I guess, uh, you know, I'll go to bed and wake up and maybe it'll still be suspended by direction of the chair. Now, as it so happened, by the time I, I woke up, they had just passed or were in the process of passing uh, the legislation. So by the time Wednesday morning came around, uh, the bill had been passed and the Conservatives had stripped away 
in their words, all of the contentious sections of this. So I'll pull up a release that was sent out by the Conservative Party of Canada this morning. They said uh, they were able to get the government to remove the section that would have allowed them to raise taxes without parliamentary approval, to walk back unlimited spending powers and make special warrants expire in June instead of September, to uh, demand government include explicit reference to putting taxpayers' rights first, uh, to put sunset clauses in the legislation, and to, and to demand accountability through Parliament uh, by virtue of reports to the Health and Finance Committees, and also that the Finance Committee would have the right to recall Parliament if abuses are identified. Now, this is important because the Finance Committee is opposition-controlled, like all committees are, because of it's a minority situation. So the Finance Committee could convene on its own and force the House of Commons to a recall. So I, I think that's a pretty much the nerdiest section of this as far as just political wonkery, if you will, but in many respects the most important because that is the concession for which the conservatives are, are claiming credit, but that is the section that will allow for parliamentary oversight and parliamentary accountability down the line. So I, I don't want to make this about just the political process at work because it's about something far more fundamental than just how the House of Commons works and this procedural rule and that procedural rule. And I still don't know if question period, I mean, maybe question period happened at 4 a.m. I have to check the PBR or something. But it's about the impetus behind it. Because if we are to do what Justin Trudeau has been telling us to do at his daily briefings for the last week and a half, two weeks, which is, you know what, we all need to just be good Canadians and rise together and work together. And, you know, Justin Trudeau has used this line pretty much every day, which is, you know, if you can drop groceries off for a neighbor, if you can, uh, you know, stay a cl stay away, if you can, you know, have a phone call with grandma, if you can do all of these things that are just nice, sweet things to do, the country will be a better place. And it's funny that this neighborly Canadian spirit that he's been uh, pontificating on didn't extend to the way that he decided to operate with his own colleagues. Now, in many respects, maybe he can just claim innocence on this, given that he was uh, at Rideau Cottage in isolation, but his team, the, the MPs for the Liberals that were tasked with actually dealing with this in the House of Commons did not operate in good faith. They didn't operate in that neighborly Canadian spirit that Justin Trudeau has been telling us to embrace and to employ. They tried to pull a fast one for whatever reason. I, you know, it could, there's that old saying, never attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence. And there's also something to be said about assuming that incompetence and malice can sometimes go hand in hand. I don't know which it is. I don't know if they are just so blind and ideological and arrogant that they thought that no Canadians would object to the Liberals having unfettered taxing and spending authority. Maybe they just thought, you know what, people trust us, people like us, the Liberals... You, you can say many things about them, but one of the most significant factors that I think helps the Liberals, and certainly the Liberals under Justin Trudeau, is that they are completely and utterly self-assured. Now, maybe not self-aware, but they are completely and utterly self-assured. Most liberals probably think Justin Trudeau can walk on water. They love their leader. They love their brand. They are absolutely thrilled with themselves, and they think all other Canadians are as well. 
So that, I, I think, is how you can justify this in some way. But I also think that there is a, a cynical attitude here that I mentioned earlier, which is that the Liberals just thought that the Conservatives wouldn't vote against it, or they wanted them to vote against it, so that they could turn around and do what's happening in the media now, which is to say, oh, those evil Conservatives. So listen, I mean, the reality is I wanted this money to get out the door. I, I think that it would have been easier to do a direct disbursement, to do what's happening in the U.S., which is give every Canadian a check for whether it's $1,000, $1,200, whatever the amount is, probably cheaper and easier to administer, which means you save money in the administration of it as well, but also more accessible to people. So if you are someone who's really vulnerable, really in need, arguably the type of person who is most in need of government support, you're probably the least likely to know how to navigate the system. If you've ever jumped down the rabbit hole of government websites and this government website and this government website and this information line and they kick you here and, and more often than not, the information you get is the wrong one and lines are clogged. You know, I just did uh, my wife's and my taxes last night, which let me tell you is no a picnic either. No way to celebrate the quarantine. Even with having an extension, I just wanted to do it and get it out of the way now. But a lot of people who are really in need of government support, and, and by the way, when I say vulnerable, I, I don't mean people that are idiots. I, I mean people that are in situations where they need the support. You know, whether it's a small business owner who doesn't know if they're going to be able to make payroll, whether it's someone who is on a fixed income right now, and uh, so whatever the case may be, people need this support. And the government is giving it to them, but you have to go through this program, that program, this program. And I think there's something to be said for just making it simple. Here's a check. Have at it. But besides the point, I'm generally supportive of the government trying to help people in this way because of the extraordinary circumstances in which we are living right now. And you know what? If the government had just done what was announced, this wouldn't have been a problem. This wouldn't have even been a debate because the conservatives were pushing for the liberals to bifurcate the bill. There was a bill that had all the aid and there was a bill that had the extended powers. The conservatives were saying, listen, why not just make this two bills? And Bill Morneau had said, oh, no, we, we, need, we need it all. We, we, we need it all. It's just one big omnibus uh, party bill that we're doing here. And that was why there were so many problems with it. So I was watching every single, I've listened to every single word Justin Trudeau has had. Now, had to say for the last week and a half. Now, if there is something deserving of an order of Canada, this is it. I have had to listen to every word that Justin Trudeau has uttered. I've also listened to everything that Chrystia Freeland and Bill Blair and Bill Morneau and all of these people have said at these daily briefings. Hours a day I'm spending listening to what the government is saying. And in some cases, these press conferences are going an hour each, and there's three of them a day that I'm watching. I'm not saying this to brag. I'm saying this to tell you that I am so immersed in what's happening, and not once did anyone ever say throughout any of these, the government needs more powers to do what's necessary to stop this. Never did that come up. In fact, Justin Trudeau has rebuffed advancing under the Emergencies Act, formerly the War Measures Act, or martial law, as people call it more colloquially, and he said, you know, even that's not necessary. It's a last resort. So, so nowhere has the idea of more government power 
been put forward as being somewhat essential. So when this comes, it is not just a blindside to the conservatives and to the NDP and to the Bloc Québécois and to the Greens. And I mean, the PPC aren't in parliament, but they're still part of the political process. It is a complete pulling of the rug out from every Canadian from under every Canadian, because these are not the discussions that were advanced. These are not the ways that the government said, we are going to help you. So I'm glad that this has been, for this particular point, put to rest. But we can't neglect to accept that we're talking about a government that did it in the first place and will potentially try to claim power or seize power in such a way in the future, especially as this crisis looks like one that we might be in for a little while. We had the World Health Organization yesterday say the United States is going to be the new epicenter of this. We have the largest unprotected border in the world with the U.S., which means even with the border restrictions that have been put in place, the exemptions for trade and family and other things are probably going to make it so that some of that will spill over into Canada. You had another World Health Organization official say that we could be looking at eight months required to eradicate this, eight months of social distancing. Now, will it be eight months looking like what we're in the midst of right now, or will it be eight months of something a lot more pared down and manageable, perhaps more regionally contained? We don't know. But if this crisis is going to last for weeks and potentially months, we have to be on guard that the government is not going to use it as an excuse to railroad in all of the things that it wants to railroad in, but couldn't without there being a, a crisis as the backdrop. And it goes back to that line I used at the beginning from Rahm Emanuel of never let a crisis go to waste. It goes back to every single decision the government has made that threatens civil liberties. And I think I said this on Monday's show, but it bears repeating now, that while there are things that need to be done that are urgent and imminent and might rub you the wrong way under any other circumstances, if such a thing happens now, you better make darn sure that it isn't permanent that crisis measures do not outlive the crisis itself. That has to be the priority here, because if it's not, Canada turns into exactly like the basic dictatorship that Trudeau years ago lauded from China, which gets put into a heck of a lot more of a scary context when you see what the Liberals tried to do this week, which is basically give Trudeau complete executive authority on the country's finances, which is the way that the country could really be handcuffed by the government. I mean, right now it is March 25th. In exactly one week, the federal carbon tax is going into place and the government's not backing away on the carbon tax, by the way. The government that says it has our back and it's helping us and it realizes there's a grave financial burden, the government is not stopping the carbon tax increase of 50% from going into effect because it still buys into this. It still buys into it. And the irony is gas prices are at a, a low point for, I don't know how long, but a major multi-year low point right now. You also have the fact that no one can go anywhere. You can't fly. You can't drive. You can't do much. Uh, goods are being shipped, but... At the same time, uh, there is not a huge influx of uh, transport beyond the normal transport. So, 
you know, the need for a carbon tax right now is kind of minimal. And look, I want to pull up a couple of stories uh, that I find are hilarious. And you get people that are just so, they hold such contempt for the human race. Oh yeah, this was the one that I liked. It was a letter to the editor in the LA Times. Not the one I was thinking of, but the sense is true. Coronavirus offers a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity on climate change. It was <laughs> the unintended consequence that is supremely positive uh, because now we can tackle greenhouse gas emissions in a way that no one uh, could have done before. And this was in response to the one that I was thinking of, an op-ed in the LA Times uh, called Coronavirus Has Something to Teach Us About How to Save the Planet by Staying Put. So, you know, I saw Prince Charles as well. The Duke of Cornwall has a coronavirus. And uh, you know what? I, Whatever I may think of him politically, I, I don't wish this on anyone, certainly people of his age. But it is interesting. People like Prince Charles and Leo DiCaprio and Joaquin Phoenix are telling us that we need to no longer eat meat. We shouldn't be able to travel. We shouldn't go anywhere. We shouldn't do anything. That we should basically just sit on our hands as though we were pioneers and just live that way, despite, you know, the emissions of candlelight. So maybe we don't even get the candles. But you get all of these alarmists that would love for us to just completely live in the dark ages this is what Earth Hour is all about every year. And I don't know, are we doing... Earth Hour is coming up, isn't it? I mean, the whole world is doing Earth Hour for multiple weeks now. So I don't know if we're officially doing Earth Hour anymore. But these people want us to live in the Dark Ages. And now you have COVID-19, which is actually forcing you to regress. The quarantine mentality is forcing us to, as a society, regress. And this is... They love this. That's the problem is that a lot of them love this. They say, oh man, this, this, this is what we need to do for climate change. There were people talking about how the canals in Venice are so much cleaner now, which yes, may be great if you're a marine biologist, but if they're greater because of a disease that is killing people, I don't think we can call this a net positive. Or China's emissions went down for a bit because no one was able to go to the factories when Wuhan was on lockdown. So again, people were cheering this. We should not be cheering this. I mean, this Malthusian, anti-human approach to the world is causing some people not to celebrate COVID-19 necessarily. I mean, in some cases, though, to, to try to find the silver lining of like, hey, you know, your life is miserable now, but if you keep this up, we, we might be able to save the planet. I mean, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez must have some very good minders that are keeping her from doing this. Uh, and incidentally, she's been, you know, crusading against Amazon for the last however many months, I have no idea. And I noticed that on her Twitter feed, which I actually looked, talk about doing the hard work. I went through AOC's Twitter feed yesterday, and I noticed she's been very silent on Amazon in the last couple of weeks, uh, given that Amazon is now like the one thing preventing the world from going into total collapse and a food shortage and, you know, supply shortages because Amazon is actually getting products to people who can't leave their homes. Uh, so all of the anti-Amazon rhetoric from the American left seems to have been put on the, the back burner for the time being, which I think is a, a bit of a positive. But the point of this is that we are not going to get through this and say, oh, you know what, I miss this. If we get through it, and I think we can, humans are resilient, Canadians, Americans are resilient, we're not going to long for the days of quarantine 
And this is something that all of the people trying to make this into an environmental fight, I, I think, are very much off base on. And that's something that we'll see. I want to do a, a little bit of an update on the conservative leadership race when we come back in just a couple of moments. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. I mentioned briefly on the show on Monday that uh, Jim Carajalios, who was running for the conservative leadership, had been disqualified. And I, I wanted to give a, a bit of an update on that. Now, for starters, the party, it seems like, is still not budging on the leadership cutoff of March 25th. And I mentioned this uh, because I was hoping that what I had talked about on the last episode would be outdated by the time the show was released. And it was. It was outdated, not for the conservative leadership stuff, uh, but for the Olympics, because I, I mentioned the Olympics might be canceled. And then like 10 minutes after I finished recording, the Olympics were canceled. <laughs> but but the leadership one was the one that I had said, I, I hope it is outdated. And the, the party's still not budging on this. Uh, Jim Carajalios is suing the conservatives. Now, I, I don't know how easy it is right now with courts uh, that have essentially shut down, but the Ontario Superior Court of Justice approved a request from Jim Carajalios to uh, consider a notice of application seeking a declaration that his disqualification from the conservative leadership race was invalid. Uh, what uh, Carajalio says in a press release is that five appointed and unelected individuals have attempted to hijack democracy by removing my name from the ballot in the conservative leadership race. Under the party's constitution and the leadership rules, these individuals neither had the grounds nor the authority to disqualify me. Their decision was politically motivated as my candidacy was increasingly, increasingly becoming a threat to stop the red Tory coronation of Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay. Now, in this application, which I have not seen, but I, I've seen a version uh, or I've seen a, an excerpt of it that was sent out by Jim Carajalios' team in a press release, uh, he says that it basically is a breach of contract on the part of the party. They disqualified him in bad faith. It was unlawful because he didn't violate any of the rules, and it offended the principles of natural justice and procedural fairness. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get into the legality of this. Now, Carajalios, for his part, is a lawyer. Uh, but the, the interesting thing is that what I have learned, especially through the course of our fight at True North against the Leaders' Debates Commission, is that you can't do things arbitrarily. And, and even though a political party is not a government agency, clearly, because the liberals were banning me from their campaign and there really wasn't anything that I could do about it, Political party elections, which uh, including a leadership election, is still subject to Elections Canada. So there is federal oversight. And more importantly, there is a, a requirement to uh, uphold the contract. So I've read the rules of the leadership race. Not exactly stellar or interesting reading, but significant reading. And the one thing that comes up is that it's very scant on detail about disqualification after someone has been approved, in which case Carajalios, who was approved as an applicant, was later disqualified, and that process is not spelled out. So he may have a case or he may not, but that seems to be really what he's uh, seizing, that something happened from an organ of the leadership process that really had no jurisdiction and no basis and no authority 
to make that decision. Now, uh, I've talked to Jim about doing a, an interview. We were originally going to do one when I was sitting down with leadership candidates, and then uh, we were hoping to touch base about this particular legal action here. Uh, but as it so happened, just with everything going on, we didn't have time to set it up for this show. So uh, for people saying, you know, are you going to talk to him? Yes, uh, the invitations out there might not be until next week. I told him that, you know, we're in the midst of really heavy knee deep COVID-19 coverage and he was uh, understandable of that. So uh, we'll have more on that as it devolves or evolves, such as the case may be, in future shows. In the meantime, my thanks to all of you for tuning in to the show. We'll be back next week, but do tune in to True North Update, a daily show with Candace Malcolm and myself with just the headlines of COVID-19. So that's where you can find uh, the news without as much of the commentary. And if you like the commentary and the analysis, do continue to subscribe to The Andrew Lawton Show. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.